two-part series looking at the introduction to the book of Exodus, which I suggested to you last week is Israel's national foundation story, without a doubt the most important story in the Old Testament, and the story that forms our understanding of who Jesus is and what he did. So it's our national foundation story. And very often when we're looking at a nation's foundation story, we'll talk about it as, as the story that tells us how a nation was born. It's the national birth story. So the book of Exodus is Israel's birth story. Um, like all birth stories, it begins some months before with a, a conception that involves, uh, sorry, not months before, years, centuries before, with, with a conception that involves God's promise to Abraham to make a people, to give him a land, to make a nation out of his descendants. And when we opened uh, to the first chapter of Exodus, we had a kind of an antenatal visit, a sort of an ultrasound checking up on the growth of this baby because what we read was the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Here's a baby that is growing well. Only in the first chapter of Exodus, we read about how this pregnancy is threatened. Um, Pharaoh has enslaved the descendants of Abraham. They're not a nation at all. And he's attempting to wipe them out, ordering that every baby boy that is born to the Hebrews must be destroyed. Well, Exodus chapter 2 now introduces to us the figure of Moses, the great leader of God's people, and in many ways, the midwife of Israel's birth. Um, and today we have two well-crafted narratives in Exodus chapter 2. Uh, one tells us the birth story of Moses, his, his delivery from death. The other tells us his growing and his preparation to become the leader of Israel and his apprenticeship for that task. It's a story that begins in the shadow of Pharaoh's chilling edict. Do you remember it? Every Hebrew baby boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Well, Moses' birth story, verses 1 to 10, is structured around the actions and the words of three women. Moses' mother, his sister, and Pharaoh's daughter, who then becomes his adopted mother. Moses' mother gives birth to him uh, when she can't keep him hidden any longer at the age of three months, she puts him in a basket. It's a very odd word that the narrator uses here. There's only one other place in the Hebrew scriptures this word's used, and that's to describe Noah's ark. She puts him in a little ark, a thing that delivers you out of the water, a thing of safety. So she puts him on the Nile, um, the very place that is a threat to Hebrew baby boys, and then his sister remains at the scene watching to learn what would happen. Now, I don't know. What are you expecting is going to happen at this point? I can only think of two possibilities, really. Eventually, this little ark, this little basket, is going to leak and sink, and the baby's going to drown or get eaten by a crocodile. Or an Egyptian's going to come along, hear the baby, um, and, uh, well, in, in that case, they're under strict orders, aren't they? They're going to have to throw this baby into the Nile, in which case it's going to drown or get eaten by a crocodile. Those seem to me to be the only two real options in front of us. 
And as it happens, an Egyptian does find the baby, but not just any old Egyptian. By a remarkable coincidence, Pharaoh's own daughter. She sees the basket, sends for it, opens it, and then what does she say? This is one of those Hebrew babies. Throw it into the Nile. Right? No, not, not, not quite. We read that she's moved with pity. So when the baby's sister steps up and says, would you like me to go and find a Hebrew woman to nurse him for you? She's pleased to do that. So it turns out by another quite remarkable coincidence, the baby's own mother is paid to feed and raise this baby until he's old enough to wean, somewhere at the age of one or maybe two years. So at the end of the story, she brings this baby boy back to Pharaoh's daughter and we read, he became her son. And the story concludes with a naming, Moses. It's a play on a Hebrew word to, uh, that's not often used actually to, it, to, to draw something or someone out of water, but it's also a play on the Egyptian word for a son. So this is a story full of irony and coincidence, isn't it? Irony because the baby is spared from Pharaoh by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. So one royal decree has saved him from another royal decree. He becomes a, a member of the royal household, a son in the royal household. And ironically, Pharaoh, who was trying to prevent this very thing, is now footing the bill to raise this boy. And it does seem to be rather one too many coincidences going on here. Of course, in the ancient world of this story, there is no such thing as a coincidence. There is no such thing as luck. They didn't know any such thing. There is only the actions of the gods behind the scenes. As inexplicable as that might be, that was how you explained events like this. And so the narrator wants us to clearly understand that it is God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is guiding events here. Despite the fact that in chapter 2, God isn't mentioned by name. Not once, not even in passing. You might also recall in chapter 1 that we met two Hebrew women of faith, that the two midwives who put their own fate into God's hands and trusted him for the outcome in the face of uh, Pharaoh's orders. Well, a similar thing happens here today. We have two Hebrew women of faith, Nathan, uh, Nathan uh, Moses' mother and Moses' sister, who, uh, by implication, are putting their baby boy into God's hands, floating him in a little ark, hoping that God will rescue him. It, it may actually be their engineering that ensures the baby is floated on the river where Pharaoh's daughter might be expected to turn up. But, of course, they can't know what she will or won't do, can they? Well, as an introduction to the story of Exodus, Moses' birth story foreshadows and anticipates Israel's birth story. Because just as Moses is going to be delivered out of the threatening waters, out of the peril of the Nile, so God is going to deliver his people through the waters of the Red Sea. This is a birth story. Um, before the Red Sea, the Israelites are a no people. They are not a nation. They are just an ethnic group of slaves in Egypt. But after the Red Sea deliverance, God will constitute them as a nation. 
They will be given an identity. They will be given leaders. They will be given a law, a constitution. They will be given a temple. And ultimately, he's going to give them a land of their own. This is the birth of a nation. Well, in the next narrative, which picks up in verse 11, we now meet Moses some years later. He's a grown man. Now, unlike the film, The Prince of Egypt, which wants to fill in all the details for him, for us, we really don't know what's happened to Moses in these years, but it would be a reasonable guess that um, he's had a first-class Egyptian education. Uh, there is a precedent for the children of foreigners to be taken in and raised in the royal household, in the royal circle, um, in order to turn them into officials, to, to assimilate them into the government of Egypt. So it's possible that Moses has actually been prepared for a life of leadership, a life of officialdom in the Egyptian nation. And so the next two narratives are, are stories about the raising of Moses to be a leader. And there's two little stories here told side by side. In each story, Moses will intervene in an oppressive situation. And in each case, what he does will become known to a more powerful man um, and they will give a response to Moses. Let's, let's look at these. Well, in the first we read that Moses goes out one day, he sees the burden that has been put upon his own people, his birth people, and he steps up to address two injustices. On the first day, he sees a Hebrew slave being beaten by an Egyptian. Now, you'd have to assume that's a slave being beaten by a slave driver. On the second day, he sees one Hebrew unjustly beating another Hebrew. But he oversteps the mark. In the first instance, he kills the Egyptian slave master. Now, he's obviously not so powerful in the royal household that he's above the law. And with a guilty conscience, he hides the body and tries to cover up his crime. In the second instance, his attempt to mediate between two Hebrews is rebuffed. He rebukes the oppressor and says, why are you hitting a fellow Hebrew? And the answer he gets is more or less along the lines of, who the hell do you think you are? Well, actually what they said is, who made you ruler and judge over us? Moses has just been rejected by his own people. And when news of what he's done reaches the ears of Pharaoh, he's rejected by Pharaoh. He has to flee now under the threat of capital punishment. But again, there's irony in this story, isn't there? Because you and I know who Moses is. We know exactly who he's destined to be. He is going to be the ruler and the judge of Israel. So now we find Moses, uh, a refugee in the desert wilderness of Midian. Um, he plonks himself by a well. And in this second story, by coincidence yet again, just the right people happen to come along. A, a group of female shepherds, the daughters of Ruel, a priest in Midian, um, turn up to water their sheep and are driven away from the well by a group of unscrupulous male shepherds. And so Moses again intervenes in an unjust situation. He rescues these fair maidens and he helps them water their sheep. And for a second time, what he has done reaches the ears of a powerful man. 
Because when Rule hears his girls coming home, much earlier than he usually expects them to come home, he asks them what's up. What? You're back already? Apparently this must be a daily occurrence, this bullying at the well. Oh yes, a nice Egyptian man saved us at the well. He watered our sheep for us. And where is he? Why did you leave him there? Go back and invite him for dinner. In fact, Moses stays for more than just dinner, doesn't he? He is invited into the household of Ruel. He gets a job in the family business as a shepherd. And more than that, he gets a place in the family. He becomes a son-in-law. And again, there's irony in this, because if you know your Israelite history, the Midianites later will be Israel's sworn enemies of pagans. They're out for the destruction of Israel, and yet God uses a man who we discover is a man of faith and hospitality in order to save Moses. So what's the lesson of this story? Well, the lesson is this, young men, if you listen closely. If you can't find a bride, go hang out at a well somewhere in the Middle East because there's obviously a surplus of young, marriageable women hanging around at wells with nothing to do. It's right here in the Bible. Probably the real lesson of the story is to pay attention to what God is up to. Again, in, in none of these stories do we hear that God has done anything, yet the ironies and the coincidence in these stories leads to only one conclusion. God is at work. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is preparing the circumstances of Moses' birth and preparing him to be a leader. Now, interestingly, Moses' first attempts here, his first steps as a leader, are an abject failure. He thought he could improve the situation of his people by responding to violence with more violence. But killing the slave driver would only have compounded the problem of the Hebrews and obviously creates a crisis for Moses. He does a little better the second time round. He intervenes in an unjust situation at the well um, and does a good thing, uh, responding to a violent situation and rescuing uh, Ruel's daughters. But in truth, it wasn't really Ruel's daughters who needed saving. It was Moses. The shepherd girls would have managed to water their sheep. They did it every day. But without their father's invitation... Moses might well have just starved out there in the desert. And what we discover is that although Moses has been groomed in Pharaoh's household for some leadership role, he has this you know, MBA from Harvard in business administration, the art of leading God's people isn't forged in the Egyptian halls of power. Moses learns to lead God's people in Ruel's household as a shepherd. His first real successful leadership position is out in the back paddock in charge of a flock of sheep. And when Moses will be summoned by God and sent back to Pharaoh as a prophet, he won't go in his Egyptian finery with his royal gate pass in his hand. He'll go as a Midianite shepherd with his shepherd's staff in hand. And God is quite specific with him about that point. Well, I said earlier that Moses' birth narrative anticipates Israel's birth narrative. 
Well, Moses' leadership preparation now anticipates Israel's needs. And there's things in both of those that are going to throw up some useful reflections on our own situation here at Barney's. Two things we should look at. It asks the question, who, or more specifically, what are God's people? Who are we as God's people? And who is fit to lead these people? What, what does this people need from its leader? What kind of leader do we need? Well, Moses' birth story throws up the question, whose son is Moses? He's obviously the biological son of his own mother, who isn't named in this story. He becomes the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, but of course then he's rejected by Pharaoh. But finally he's taken into Ruel's family as a son by marriage. You know, as we go on, the Exodus story is going to throw up the same question about the people of Israel. To whom do they belong? Pharaoh will put a case that they're his. They're his property his slaves. But in chapter 4, Moses is going to be sent to Pharaoh with this message for him. This is what Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may worship me. You know, when, we get a, when we're born, we get a birth certificate. On that birth certificate is our name. Uh, usually our parents' names, uh, the place we are born. It's, it's an identity document. It tells everybody who we are. Well, in these stories, Moses' identity is being formed and Israel's identity is being formed. We find out who they are. They are God's son. And when God brings them through the birth canal of the Red Sea, into the desert, he'll gather them at the nation, and then he'll tell them who they are. He'll say, out of all the nations, you will be for me a treasured possession. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what's written on their birth certificate. Well, who are we as the New Testament people of God? What's on our birth certificate? Well, the Apostle Peter describes us in very similar words. He says in his first letter, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And how did that come about? Well, he tells us through a birth experience. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We mustn't forget our birth story. It's, it's our identity. It tells us who we are and how we came to be here. We are God's people. And we are also God's people. Not a loose collection of saved individuals, but Jesus' church. Not private consumers shopping for congenial spiritual products that might enhance our lives. We are a worshipping and witnessing community. And as Peter says, our purpose is to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Moses' story teaches us something else, doesn't it, about the nature of leadership in God's people. 
The first lesson that Moses had to learn was that it is God who does the saving. Moses doesn't save anyone. Never. In fact, Moses needed saving. Twice he needed to be saved from Pharaoh. Uh, once he needed to be starved from, saved from starvation in Midian, and we're only in chapter 2 of the book. Turns out the primary qualification for Christian leadership remains a personal experience of God's salvation. And so that means for us that our leaders are sinners justified by grace like the people they lead. It also breaks one of the myths of the modern church, the idea that there is a thing called a call to ministry. It's actually very difficult to find that concept of calling in the Bible, if it occurs at all, in fact, because in the vocabulary of both the Old and the New Testament, calling refers overwhelmingly to God's choice of us as his people, God summoning us to come and belong to him. The idea that within that group there's another group of people who have a special calling to priestly ministry is not actually biblical thinking. Because as Peter pointed out, we are all part of the royal priesthood. We are all intended to do ministry. But because Jesus, by the gift through the gifts the Holy Spirit gives, gifts us differently, then obviously there are some of us who have giftings that enable the rest of us to grow and better serve Jesus. But Christian leaders are simply first among equals, servants of the servants, if you like. The second lesson that Moses learns here is that his real preparation for leadership comes from being a shepherd. And that's a big step down from what he's used to. There's probably no job in the ancient world more pedestrian, more working class than shepherd. And for the rest of his life, Moses will be doing shepherd work. He'll be out in the desert herding people, rounding them up constantly towards God, teaching them to follow him, teaching them to put their trust in him, teaching them to obey him. And Moses' work as a shepherd will bring him to the brink of needing to offer his own life in exchange for the people's life in order to prevent a catastrophe. That, we discover, is what a shepherd does. He puts himself between the people and disaster. Well, I think there's a couple of things we do well to remember as we engage on a search for a new leader for ourselves. We do well to remember that no church is saved by its leader. It's saved by its Lord. And it doesn't matter how competent a ruler, how competent a judge or shepherd a Christian minister might be, they are a justified sinner, just like the rest of us. They're God's workmanship. They're undergoing their own process of being matured into Christ-likeness, just like the rest of us. So we can't turn our leaders into the object of our hopes or into the saviour from our difficulties because that's God work. Only Jesus is competent to do that. Putting a leader on such a pedestal is idolatry. It's spiritually dangerous for us and it's a crushing burden for them. 
the leaders that Jesus gives us, the, the other thing that we need to keep in mind is that we need people who are shepherds, not MBAs from Harvard. People who are ultimately concerned with the welfare of sheep, not the profitability of sheep stations. We need pastors, not project managers. Because godly leaders are Jesus' gift to the church to equip us to do ministry, to round us up and keep us following after God. And we end up engaged in ministry with them. We don't employ our ministers to do our following for us, to do our service, to do our loving for us. That's just laziness. And again, that's spiritually dangerous for us and a crushing burden for them. But there's one more thing to take away from this. At the end of his long life, Moses says to the Israelites, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. As the centuries went on, this was taken as a promise of one particular future leader, a, a, a greater than Moses leader, who would be instrumental in finally delivering Israel to the place they needed to be in the world and finally being the instrument of blessing the world. Turns out Moses was not the saviour of Israel. But Jesus is. Because Moses' birth story doesn't just anticipate the birth of the nation of Israel, but the birth of Jesus, the Son of God. You know, the, the Gospels record for us, he too was saved from a murderous king, as a baby. He too passed through the waters of baptism and then passed through a baptism of death in our place for our sins to rescue us from wrath and death, to give us this new birth. He presented himself to us as the good shepherd, the ultimate pastor, the good shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep put himself between us and catastrophe. He is the one whom God will say at his baptism, this is my son, with him I'm well pleased. God will also say at the transfiguration, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. We have in Jesus the ultimate pastor, the ultimate judge the ultimate ruler, a shepherd king, raised to life, seated at the right hand of the Father where he governs all things and is bringing all things to their intended goal in himself. Praise God, that's good news because it means somebody competent is actually in charge. Somebody with proper qualifications is leading God's people. Let's pause and let's give thanks. Lord Jesus, we would just stop in front of your throne right now. Give you thanks for uh, your reign, your goodness. And we would today put ourselves into your hands, even as we seek to understand who we are here at St Barney's, and we seek to understand who is a fit leader. Well, Lord, we remember that we have you over us. We pray then you would be at work to shape us as a congregation. And to bring to us a leader, not someone we will idolise, not someone we will crush, not someone we will 
make do our work for us, but someone whom you will um, use to equip us, to cajole us, to round us up, to head us back in the right direction, to keep us following, to keep us putting our feet in the right place. Lord, have mercy on us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.